good friend of mine sent me an email the other day said he was having some real trouble with his son who was chewing on electrical cords and he was kind of worried about that so he said he had to ground him and the the punishment that he was doling out there grounding him caused some outrage some shock in his family but he said currently he's conducting himself properly so he felt like it was it was effective Glad that you are here. You could have chosen to do anything that you wanted to do on a Friday evening, but you chose to come consider some of, maybe, no, the most important question that there is, and that is, does God exist? We're going to be dealing with various aspects of that topic in this weekend seminar as we look at this evening is the idea of God scientific? And then we're going to look at the moral implications of atheism, the fruits of atheism. Then we're going to look at some of the challenges that people present to the God of the Bible. Well, if God is so loving, if God is so good, then why does the Bible condone slavery? Why is the Bible a book that is sexist toward women? That's the accusation. What we're going to see is those accusations do not hold water and they are going to be able to be dealt with so that we can show that God is a loving God and that the Bible certainly doesn't present any type of sexist views, etc. But we're going to be dealing with things that on a regular basis I see all around this country being pointed at God and the Bible and members of the church being affected by that. And let me tell you what I mean. Not long ago, my co-worker, Eric Lyons, was talking to me and he said, Come, are, are you hearing things like this? And I had just heard a story very similar to this. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he told me a story about how in one congregation, one of the young ladies who had grown up in that congregation married a member of the church. They seemed like they were very strong members of the church that were actively involved in the Lord's kingdom and the Lord's work. And then they started kind of phasing out of their church attendance and then they just quit going altogether. And when the preacher went to ask them, why have you left the Lord and the church? Their response was, well, we started reading very closely what the Bible had to say and the Bible talks about things in it that we just felt like were morally wrong, like slavery and the Bible's position on women and things of that nature. And we decided that there's no way that a loving God could kill innocent people like the flood narrative talks about. And so we no longer believe in God and we are now atheists. They had grown up in the Lord's church, had been actively involved in the Lord's work after being married and for years. And yet, something about what they ran into in this discussion was so problematic to them that it caused them to lose their faith. And I think sometimes we just haven't answered some of these questions sufficiently for some people to hold on to. Let me tell you what I mean by that. There are some people who, even though they don't have answers, they just keep trudging forward, hoping that they'll get good answers to these types of things one day. I was at Polishing the Pulpit several years ago now, and we were doing a lesson on can a loving God allow or personally kill innocent children? It's a good question. You know, when the flood occurred, it's estimated that there were 2 billion people. How many of the 2 billion people do you think were innocent children who were 4, 5, 3, 2, 1? And so that's a question that we'll be dealing with in this series. But after this lesson, the individual from Canada, he was from Canada, and he had come down to polishing the pulpit, and he came up to me and he said, I have been in the Lord's church for decades. He said, and this question has troubled me for 30 years. And I've never had a legitimate answer to it until this lesson. Well, you know, when is the last time you heard a lesson on what does the Bible really say about slavery? What does the Bible really teach about God allowing or causing the death of innocent children? What are the moral implications of atheism? What are some of these answers to the accusations that the atheistic and unbelieving community is giving us? Do we even have legitimate good answers to those? 
And I'm going to tell you right up front that yes, I believe we do have excellent, outstanding, very reasonable and correct answers to these challenges. But I'm also going to say, I feel like some of us, well, maybe many of us have just not stopped to ask what is really going on with this topic? What is really the implication if this is true, then this? And so we're going to be working through much of that this weekend on the topic of atheism. Now, here's why this is so very important, I think, in 2021. And that's simply because if you look at the stats right now, the fastest growing religion in the United States of America is no religion. If you were to ask the average person on the street, you go down to Detroit, you ask the first four people that you meet, are you associated or affiliated with any religion whatsoever? One out of four of them are going to say no. They're in a category that the statisticians now call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And the nuns are people who say we have no religious affiliation whatsoever. We're not affiliated with Christianity in any, any way. We're not affiliated with Islam in any way. We're not affiliated with any type of organized religion in any way. Now, some of them will say they have some type of spiritual belief or believe in some types of things, just nothing official that they connect themselves to. They don't go to any type of church service. They're not involved in any type of regular assembly with anybody else that believes in anything religious. They are nuns. Now, that's one out of four people in the United States who are basically 18 years or older. Now, if you change that stat to what about the 18-year-olds to the 29-year-olds? That percentage goes from 25% to 39%, right at 40%. So if you were to have 10 people who were aged 18 to 29 and you ask them what religion you're affiliated with, they would then tell you no religion whatsoever. Now, what's interesting about that is that in the Lord's church right now, we're losing approximately 40% of all of our young people. At large, any religious groups that call themselves Christians, if you were looking at any denominational group or the Catholic church, etc., if they say we believe in Jesus Christ, the average percentage of young people that they are losing right now, a 15-year-old, if you wait 10 years and ask, okay, you had 10, 15-year-olds 10 years ago, how many of them now are actively involved in your services? They're losing 60% of all of their young people. And when we then ask, okay, so you're losing 60% of your young people, the Lord's Church is losing 40% of our young people. Why? What's the reason for this? You know, as you then gather those people together who no longer are religious. If you ask 100 of them, let's say you had 100 people and they at one time were members of some type of church. Most of them would call themselves Christians in the past. And you got 100 of them and you say, okay, you no longer are religious whatsoever. Why? They then say, well, just because we don't believe it anymore. Okay, so you don't believe it. Well, what do you mean by that? You don't believe it anymore. So then you ask, what do you mean you don't believe it? And the answers that we are getting is, well, I started learning about Darwinism and how the Bible is in contradiction to Darwinism and modern science proves Darwinism to be true and so I just don't believe the Bible anymore. Or I just learned that the idea of God is not a scientifically testable idea and I understand science to be true and so the idea of God can't be. Or I just began to think the idea of God in the Bible was something like fairy tales like the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus and I just quit believing it. The number one reason we're being given why people are leaving churches across the country and the Lord's church is... Hey, I just don't think there's evidence that proves what we've been saying is the case. Now sadly, sadly that's absolutely false. There are loads and loads and mounds and mounds of any 
numbers of kinds of evidence that you can produce to prove that there is a God, that the Bible is God's Word, that Jesus is God's Son, and that Christianity is the only reasonable and rational conclusion to the evidence that's available. And yet sometimes we just haven't looked at it. Right now, in the United States of America, there are about 3% of all the adults who are asked say they are absolutely hard-nosed atheists. And what I mean by that is they say there is no God and I know that, they say, and you should know that too. And many of them are very religious atheists. And what I mean by that is they are evangelistic atheists. I have debated several people who were hardcore atheists. One of them by the name of Dan Barker. He said, and he puts it in these words, that he had conducted atheistic evangelism all over the country. And his stated purpose, he said, if we could just convince one person, one young person, not to waste any of their time on religion, we've made the world a better place. Don't think that unbelief is sitting by and allowing the Christian faith to go unaccused and unattacked. Because that's not happening. Unbelief is actively involved in trying to evangelize young people to the concept of there is no God. So that's 3% of the adult population. Another 4% of the adult population is agnostic. And what we mean by agnostic is we would say, okay, the agnostic says, I don't believe there's a God and there's a really high probability in my mind that God doesn't exist, 98, 99%. I can't prove it beyond any doubt, but I'm almost positive there's not, so I'm going to live like there's not a God. In fact, not long ago, I think it was just a couple years ago, over in London, the Unbelieving Society, they paid for some advertising on the buses that said there's probably not a God so go and live your life and have fun. That was the message that they had paid to put on the public transportation there. And so as you look at these things 3% atheistic, 4% are agnostic. You're looking at in the United States of America 22 million people who do not believe in God. And that's very outspoken unbelief. That's not to mention the people who are listening to this type of teaching and are quietly changing their minds about God. This is people who just would absolutely say, oh yeah, I don't believe in God at all. 22 million. I live in Columbia, Tennessee, and Montgomery, Alabama is about four hours south of me. And so to go to Montgomery, where our headquarters at Apologetic Express are, I have to drive through Birmingham. Now, if you've ever driven through Birmingham, you know that you need to time it right, or you're going to add about an hour, hour and a half to your trip, because if you decide you're going through Birmingham at, let's say, a Friday night at 5.30, that's going to be a mistake. And the reason that's going to be a mistake is because there will be all kinds of traffic that you will sit in for hours and you will go one mile an hour and then you'll speed up to the breakneck speed of six miles an hour and then you will slow down. To, and here's why that's the case because there are approximately one million people in Birmingham, Alabama and the surrounding areas of Bessemer and the areas just right outside of town. About a million of them. Now what I've never figured out is how in the world there can be one million people in Birmingham, Alabama and when you're driving through on a Friday night at five o'clock there can be two million cars. It's like everybody owns two cars and they're all driving them both and I don't know how that works, but it seems to happen every Friday night. Now think about this. Birmingham, Alabama, a million people. It's the one of the largest cities in, I think it is the largest city in Alabama. I think Huntsville's next. You take that city and you fill it full of adults and every single one of them says, I don't believe in God. Then you take another city, the exact same size, you fill it with adults and every single one of them says, I don't believe in God. You multiply Birmingham, Alabama by 22. And I'm not talking to having any kids that, that aren't 
even answering the questions. I'm talking every single one of them being adults. And they say, I don't believe in God. Like I said, unbelief is the fastest growing religion in the nation. Now, I'm going to look at the idea of proving that God exists without using the Bible as evidence for God's existence. I think you can do that. And lots of times what we're told is that, you know, God doesn't work in modern science because God is not a scientific idea. And when you ask the simple question, what do you mean God is not a scientific idea? They say, well, because you can't touch, see, taste, hear, or smell God. You can't do an experiment on God. And only things that you can do an experiment on are scientific. And so God doesn't fit with modern science. Now, the problem with this is that's a lie. That's not how real science is done. Although many people have changed the definition of science in the last several decades. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Historically, the definition of science was simply this. A search for correct answers about why or how things happen in it's like right when I stand right there for some reason. I don't know what that is, but something about that spot. So we're going to be lopsided over here probably tonight. I'm going to stand right here. But here's what real science is. Real science is when you look for the answer. You look for the best explanation to the things that you see happening in the world. Now, people in the past understood that. Isaac Newton who gave us an entirely different way to look at the world with Newtonian physics. Do you know Isaac Newton wrote more about the Bible than he ever wrote about science? And yet he is one of the most famous scientists ever to have lived, and he has more Bible commentary than he has scientific writings. Why is that? Well, because Isaac Newton simply said, I'm going to follow the evidence wherever it leads, and if the answer leads to the idea that there's a supernatural creator, then that's a scientific answer. As you look at people like George Washington Carver, who I think he made 160 different things with a peanut. And he invited all several of his colleagues over one evening, and he served them a seven-course meal. Had a meat course and everything, and at the end of it, he said, Do you know all you guys ate tonight was peanut? They couldn't believe it. And when they asked George Washington Carver about his study scientifically, he talked to them about how God was so amazing and so much higher than humans that he had given George Washington Carver just a peanut. And he still hadn't figured everything out about a peanut. And he actively was involved in teaching Bible classes at his congregation where he attended. Now why was that? Because he approached science with just the simple idea of I'm going to find the answer that best explains all of the information. I'm not going to limit my definition. What we've been told now in modern scientific circles is that no, that's not the definition of science. The definition of science is when you give answers that are naturalistic or materialistic. That you can't call something science unless the answer is a naturalistic or a materialistic process. You can't use anything supernatural or not material. Now, we're going to see why that runs into a very serious problem scientifically. But let's think if you did approach stuff like that. You walk into somebody's backyard and you look down and there's an apple. I checked into the Hampton right there in Ypsilanti and they had some green apples right there and I love an apple. And so I got that green apple, I took a bite out of it and thought this is delicious. Loved ate the whole thing and was sitting there thinking I love apples. Now imagine you walk into this person's backyard, you look down and there's an apple and it has one bite out of it. And then you see all of these people with cameras and research stuff come up to you and they say, hey, we want you to determine how the bite got out of that apple. How that, that particular piece of apple got removed from the apple. You said, okay, great. It's just one stipulation. You can't use a human being in your answer. Okay. Now, 
we've got an apple and we check the dental marks and it looks just like human being teeth and so we knock on the door we get the guy's name who owns the house we say you know just doing some research here do you mind if we see your dental records and he says oh no problem so takes you a couple days to get to his dentist and you get his dental records and you match them perfectly to the pattern in the apple so the man who owns the house has a perfect dental match to the bite and then you were able to take a sample of some liquid that was on the apple and the sample of the liquid that was on the apple you were able to test it for DNA and it matches the owner's DNA perfectly and then you also luckily were able to dust for fingerprints on the apple and because well, you guys might know they put that little wax around the apple to preserve it so it doesn't get brown real quick and it's real shiny when they do that and so it just happened to grab the fingerprint of the person that had been holding that apple and hey, it matched the owner of the house and so you then go to the people and you say hey I think I have the answer we've got a perfect dental match which is highly highly improbable we've got a perfect DNA match which is ridiculously more improbable and we've got the fingerprint of the person I think that the person who owned the house took a bite out of it and threw it in his backyard and they say can't be the answer you said why not they said well because the stipulation is you can't use a human being for the answer okay so if you mark off the answer that makes the most sense what then do you have to do now how are you going to respond to how the bite of that apple or that chunk of that apple got pulled out of the apple without saying it was a human? Now you're going to have to go to a, some type of theory or some type of idea that doesn't answer it as well but fits the new definition of you can use anything you want as long as you don't use a human. Okay, so now you start saying, that. well, if that apple fell it would hit some rocks and those rocks might make a chunk out of the apple or maybe lightning struck the apple or maybe there was an animal with the perfect dental match to something that looked like a human although we've never seen anything like that in this part of the country or really in the whole world maybe in that DNA maybe it's not human DNA although we have a perfect match maybe it was spliced from some accident so you have to start thinking up some outlandish idea as to how the chunk got out of the apple because you've defined out of the discussion humans. Now what has happened in modern science is they've said, okay, you can give any answer you want as long as it's materialistic. If you start having to be forced to give a materialistic answer when a better answer is present, then your ideas get fairly ridiculous. And so if you're told, hey, God can't be scientific because you can't touch, see, taste, hear, or smell God. And so until you can give me an idea that you can touch, see, taste, hear, or smell, I'm not going to listen to you. You're not going to get published in any of our peer-reviewed journals. What you say is not going to count as science. Well, number one, that's ridiculous because that's not how anybody does science ever. What's the whole point of forensic science? You arrive on the scene and guess who you're looking for? The criminal. He's not here. You don't see him. You can't touch, see, taste, hear, or smell the criminal. But are there some things on the scene that can give you very good information about a criminal that you don't see? Absolutely, positively. In fact, let's say we were doing something like... Is that rain? Wow. You guys getting some storms up here? It's been raining all day. I saw that when I flew in. I thought, boy, it wasn't raining where I was when I left this morning. You know how that goes sometimes. Sunny, 75 degrees. Get up here, it's not sunny in 75. But, you know, hey, work with me here. So let's say you're walking down a beach and you see some footprints on the sand and a person says, hey, footprints on the sand and you say yeah I believe that a human being made those and they say that can't be true you don't touch see, taste or smell any human being here you look down the beach there's no human being where the prints went is it true that you can't know anything about who or what made the footprints just because you don't see them no let's see what you you start looking at the footprints and on each footprint there are five toes how many toes did the being have that made these prints? Ten. You don't see the being. You don't see their toes. Can you tell if the foot had an arch or was flat-footed? Sure you could. 
from the footprints. Can you tell approximately how tall the person was based on the footprints? Yes, you could. If you had the statistical information, you could see that if they were a certain distance from each other, then that would put the stride in the range of a certain height of a person. So if they were you know, 28 inches apart, then that might put the stride. Now, don't quote me on this. I hadn't really done the study, but might put the person's height at 5, 9, or 10. If you had real good equipment, you could check the density of the sand and see how far down in the sand the footprint is. And then you could see how much pressure it would take to make that kind of deep footprint. And so you could know the approximate weight of the person. So here's what you can know. You've never seen the person, but you can know how many toes the person has. You can know if they're flat-footed or they have an arch. You can know if they are a certain height. If you have the right equipment, you can know about how much they weigh, but you've never seen the person. Now, why is that? Because nobody has ever done real science based on the idea that if the answer is not in front of you that you can't touch, see, taste, or smell, then that can't be the answer. Nobody works like that. Now, if you don't want to recognize that God exists, you can make that definition. But that's not how things actually go in science. In fact, some of the people that are the most outspoken on this front who say, okay, God's not scientific, then if you ask them, okay, do you ever use what they call indirect observation or indirect inference? They say, yeah. Like if there's a star out there that we can see and periodically it wobbles to a certain degree, then they'll say, we can know why it's wobbling, the gravitational force from a star that we can't see, and we can tell you about how big that star is, even though we'll never see it because it's too far away, or it's too dark, or it doesn't put off any light, or it's some type of body out there that we won't be able to see, but we can know things about it because of the way it is causing something else to behave. Now, I said we were not going to use the Bible as evidence for the existence of God, and we're not. But we are going to repeat something that I just said that a biblical writer has said. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Bible simply says this, For since the beginning of creation, His, in this reference is talking about God, His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things which are made. Now here is what that writer is simply saying. You don't see God. You don't see His mind or intelligence. You don't see His feet or His arms. You've never physically seen God. Just like you have never physically seen the person that made the tracks on the beach. But God's invisible attributes, the things that you don't see about God, are clearly seen. Okay, the things that you don't see about the person walking down the beach, you didn't see that person's foot. But can you have a good visual idea, mental visual idea of what the person's foot looked like? Absolutely. So you mean to tell me there are some things that you can know about something having never seen it, but you can know it just as if you did see it? Yes. The invisible attributes, things you don't see about God, are clearly seen by what? By the things which are made... Even His eternal power and Godhead. Now there are two things that we're going to look at right there. His eternal power. In the beginning was matter. And matter begot the amoeba. And the amoeba begot the worm. And the worm begot the fish. And the fish begot the amphibian. And the amphibian begot the lower mammal. And the lower mammal begot the lemur. And the lemur begot the monkey. And the monkey begot the man who imagined God, this is the genealogy of man. That's a quote from a man by the name of Charles Smith who was putting in word form the concept of atheistic naturalism. That there's never been anything else besides this physical material world and that life somehow sprung from non-living chemicals and changed over multiplied millions or billions of years into humans and then somehow humans invented the idea of God. You ask, okay, the alternative, you've heard the alternative as well in the beginning, God, 
created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God divided the light from the dark, the light He called day, the darkness He called night, and evening and a morning, day one. And subsequently, day two, God creates the expanse or the firmament. Day three, He creates the flowers, grass, and trees, all of plant matter. Day four, He creates the sun, moon, and stars and puts those in the expanse that He created on day two. Day five, He creates the swimming and flying creatures. Day six, the land-living creatures and humans. Day seven, He ceases His creative activity. So you have those two ideas, and you ask, okay, to which of those ideas does the evidence point? Now, what we are told right now, that atheistic idea, is that 13.82 billion years ago, there was a tiny singularity that exploded in what is called the Big Bang. And that Big Bang brought a universe into existence that was only hydrogen, and that hydrogen formed into stars that exploded and cooked all of the other elements, and we got here from a singularity that exploded in a Big Bang and caused everything that you see. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that is the most ascientific, non-scientific idea that has been presented to the public because of this singular thought. We know some things about how matter and the material world operates. In fact, we live understanding the most fundamental scientific law that there is in existence. It's it's something that every single experiment ever done in science uses. Now, you've been experimenting on this all your life, but you haven't really cloaked it in scientific stuff. It's the law of cause and effect, and it says for every material effect that you see, there's a cause that came before it, and that is greater than it. That is something that you deal with every single day. Now, I have been illustrating this for years because this idea is so fundamental To what we do every day, you know the answers to the simple questions that a person would ask. For instance, suppose you're listening to me and you are paying very close attention to everything that I'm saying. You're not thinking, oh, I'm kind of hungry and would like some buffalo wild wings right now, especially the honey barbecue ones. You're not thinking that. Neither am I. None of us are thinking that. So you're paying very close attention to what I'm saying. Remember that. And all of a sudden, this book catapults itself across the room, hits the exit sign, blows the exit sign up into 500 pieces, book into 150 pages, and your eyes get as big as saucers. You turn and look at me. You say, Kyle, what caused that? Why in the world would you ask such a silly question? Oh, because you know there had to be a cause. What if I were to say nothing? Sometimes books just spontaneously shoot themselves across rooms at 100 miles an hour and crash into exit signs while I'm talking about Buffalo Wild Wings. What if I said that? What if, what if someone said that and you would chuckle and laugh and kind of give me like, okay, Kyle, now really what happened? If it really did happen, you would say, okay, now really what happened? And I said, no, I'm serious. Sometimes books just shoot themselves across rooms spontaneously with no cause. And you might then the second time be like, oh, God. no, seriously. What if I, with a very straight face, after having said, I've studied this stuff and I have a PhD in the chemistry and the physics of it, I'm telling you sometimes books shoot yourself across rooms with no cause. You'd start to get pretty aggravated, I think. And you'd realize, okay, no. That doesn't happen. In fact, the entire discipline of modern science is to try to find the cause of something. You're getting sick. What caused that? A bridge collapsed. What caused that? A bacteria is causing disease on a certain plant and is killing the population. What caused that? If anybody projects that, you know what, hey, sometimes people just get sick because it's bad luck and nothing's causing it. There's no cause to it. It just spontaneously occurs without a previously existing cause. You don't accept that because it violates the most fundamental law of science that you use every single day. You step on something and your foot hurts. What caused that? 
Oh, nothing spontaneously. Sometimes, okay, no, you want to know, oh, that was a Lego, and I have a little kid, and he strategically placed those in the floor so there's not one place I can step at night without walking on one of the most vicious torture devices that have ever been invented for parents, and that's Legos that are sticking straight up or the ones that are on their side with the really pointy little corner sticking straight up. Now that, I digress. What caused that? It's a really good question. Okay, supposedly according to the atheistic idea, this tiny singularity popped into existence from... But where did it come from? That, that tiny singularity. Okay, you get all the way back to the beginning that you say was the cause of it. Okay, so now you have a materialistic cause, this singularity. It's a material effect. What caused it? That's a good question, isn't it? Now, the atheistic community has no answer to that. In fact, there was a man by the name of Stephen Hawking. Some of you might remember Stephen Hawking. He's the late Stephen Hawking now. He has passed away. Had Lou Gehrig's disease. And he could operate his chair with, a, with one little corner of his mouth, and he could himself put together speeches that were read in kind of a robotic voice. I think you've probably heard some of them maybe on the History Channel. And he wrote a book called The Grand Design. And in this book, The Grand Design, he had written one previously that basically said, hey, the, the world looks like it might could have had an intelligent designer. And several of his atheistic friends said, no, you've got to clear that up because it sounds like you were allowing for God. You need to straighten that out. So he writes this new book called The Grand Design. And in the book, The Grand Design, he talks about some problems that we're about to get into here in just a minute with the idea of a big explosion coming from that singularity. But he gets to that single question, okay, where did the singularity come from? Still a very good question. Where did you get the original stuff? Here's what he said. He said, stars like our sun don't pop into existence from nothing. Oh, thank you. I mean, we appreciate that. Stars, one million, our sun's a million times the size of the earth. You can put a million earth in the sun. Thank you for telling us it doesn't pop into existence from nothing. That, that's fundamental. He said black holes don't spontaneously pop into existence from nothing. Appreciate it. But whole universes do. Do you know that the law of cause and effect whether scientists want to admit it or not, is the basis for every scientific experiment ever done. What good is an experiment if the answer can be, well, nothing causes it, it just spontaneously happens without a previously existing cause? That doesn't work. You stop the entire system of scientific inquiry. And yet when you get back to the atheistic proposition that there was a singularity and you ask the simple question, where did it come from? The answer is just popped into existence from, from nothing. That's not a scientific answer. You know, it's kind of like the old joke where the engineer came to God and he said, God, I'm looking at your universe and I just don't think you did that good of a job. God says, you don't think I did that good of a job? The engineer says, no, I think that I could do better than you did. And if you and I had a contest, I could build a better universe. God says, okay, well, let's me and you have a contest and you build yours, I'll build mine. And we'll see which is better. And the engineer bends down and picks up a handful of dirt and God says, hold on, you've got to get your own dirt. You don't get to start with dirt. You don't get to start with the singularity. If there ever were a time when there was nothing, what would you have right now? I think it was Aristotle who said, nothing is what rocks dream about. Nothing. There cannot have been a time when there was nothing. You see, the first problem with the atheistic idea is that somehow that singularity popped into existence from... Well, see, when you get down to it, what they want to say is, well, you know, that singularity did not behave like matter. It acted different. It didn't follow the laws of matter. It acted like more than matter. 
That singularity, while we're going to say it was matter, because remember, the new scientific definition is it's got to be material. We're going to say it was material, but we're going to say it didn't follow the law of cause and effect, and it didn't have the same properties as everything else we've seen. We're going to say it didn't act like matter, even though it has to be matter. She's going to say it's, it's more than matter. It's like super matter. It's more than nature. It's like, like super nature. Oh, yeah, because see, when you get back to it, you've got to say there's something that doesn't act like what we've got now. Yeah, at the beginning, there had to be something, but it can't act like matter. It has to be super nature. It's got to be super natural, which is what we've been saying for years. So when the atheistic community says, we've got this brand new amazing scientific idea, and that's that there was this little singularity that popped into existence from nothing, and it didn't act like anything material, although we're going to call it material. So you mean to tell me at the beginning there was something that didn't act like matter? Yeah. Well, you know, of course, where we're going with this because absolutely we've always contended that there was something that didn't act like matter. A supernatural God. Now, when you then present the idea that there is a supernatural eternal God that's always been there, which is what you have to have, something that's always been there and didn't act like matter, then we get the next question, which is a very good question. Well, how come the law of cause and effect doesn't apply to God? If you say that everything has to have a cause, well, what caused God? Well, hold on just a second. We didn't say that everything has to have a cause. We said, as we study the material universe, we know what matter does. We've studied matter enough to know matter, any physical effect, has to have a cause that came before it and that was greater than it. But you can't keep doing that all the way and all the way and all the way. There has to be something that that didn't apply to. But it couldn't be material because we know what material does. So you had to have something super matter, supernatural, that doesn't act like matter that's always been here. Okay, now let's go back to Romans. Now, there again, we're not using this as evidence for God. We're just stating it as the biblical writer stated. For since the beginning of creation, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power in Godhead. So as you look at this idea of the law of cause and effect, you realize it points to something that's eternal and matter can't be it. Now what happens when you change the definition of science to say we want the best explanation and it gets changed to we want an explanation that's material? You then get this idea. Okay, there's something at the beginning that didn't act like everything else, but we're going to call it material, but say it acted different. Because we can't say it's not material because we've defined that out of the discussion. Now let's look at the next aspect of this explosion idea. A tiny singularity that was 10 to the negative 26 centimeters across is what some people say it was that supposedly popped into existence from nothing and then exploded into the universe that we see. Now the second aspect of the law of cause and effect was that the cause has to be greater than the effect. Let's go back to my illustration. Suppose there again, you are now listening to me again. And you are paying very close attention to what's being said. And again, the book shoots across the room, hits the exit sign, 500 pieces, 150 pages. You turn around, you look at me, you say, Kyle, what caused that? And this time I don't give you the ridiculous idea that nothing caused it. It just spontaneously happened. This time I give you this idea. While you were listening to me, a tiny speck of dust landed on the book and catapulted it across the room at 100 miles an hour, and that's what caused that. Doesn't violate that aspect of the cause that came before it because now we have a speck of dust that landed on it. What's the problem with it? It's not big enough. That speck of dust landing on the edge of the book is not going to catapult it across the room at 100 miles an hour because the cause is not big enough for the effect. How big of an effect do we have? Well, the universe is the effect, and how big is it? 
The fact of the matter is I could talk to you about the size of the universe for the rest of the evening, for, for hours, literally hours, when you start trying to wrap your mind around how big the universe is. I'll just give you a few examples of the massive nature of our universe. Several years ago, they suggested to us that there were 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, I love the Milky Way galaxy, uh, partly because that's where I live, and partly because it's named after a candy bar. And the rest of the galaxies have wacko names like the Andromeda Galaxy or GX302, but we have the candy bar galaxy. And that's exciting to me because as you start thinking about it, you can always remember, where do you live? We live in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, the thing about the Milky Way galaxy is... As you look up at night, it's named the Milky Way Galaxy because there's a basically almost like a little creek-like section that runs through that's real milky looking. Well, why do you have that milky looking wave kind of stream that runs basically through the middle of the sky? Because there are so many stars behind that that you are seeing all the light from those stars and it's causing that little milky idea there. And so you have the Milky Way galaxy. They estimated there were 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy several years ago. Now I guess it's about eight years ago. 100 billion, I mean, what kind of number is that? We don't use those, certainly not in my bank account at home, and I'm sure that you don't use those on a regular basis. What's 100 billion even mean? Suppose you got up in the morning and you decided you wanted to count to 10,000. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, as fast as you could, 10,000. Now, why in the world you'd want to get up in the morning and count to 10,000, I don't know, but I have heard tell that some people do. Years ago, my son, who is now 18, I think he was probably about four at the time that he did this. He got up, he would get up earlier than my wife and I on Saturdays and watch cartoons, do whatever it was he was doing. And one Saturday he got up, he said, Dad, I got up today and today I counted. I said, oh, you did, you counted. I said, what did you count? He said, nothing, just counted. I said, okay, what did you count to? He said, I counted to 3,000. Never got up on a Saturday morning live streaming through the blinds and you think, oh, what a day to count. <laughs> you just start right there and count to 10. I haven't. Now, as I have traveled around the country for the last 22 years and talked to audiences, I have had other smaller children come to me and say, I do that sometimes too. So if you are a counter, more power to you. I mean, if you want to count to 48,000, I don't, I don't know how high you've ever personally counted, but let's say you counted to 10,000. You know, it gets real boring at about a thousand to me, a thousand and one, a thousand two. You get into ten thousand, you then get into, well, count to ten thousand every single day for a year. And then two, and then three, and then four. Do you know if you counted to ten thousand every single day, if you wanted to count to the number 100 billion, it would take you over 27,000 years to count to 100 billion. And every one of those numbers represents a star. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, 10, 11, 12. They all represent stars. Our sun is a star. On average, it's not that big. It's a middle-sized star. You can put 1 million Earths inside of the sun. So you multiply our planet Earth by a million. You can put all of those inside the sun, and it's a middle-sized star. There are some stars out there that are 1,400 times bigger than the sun. So you can put 1,400, 1,400 suns inside some of those big stars. So that means you can put 1.4 billion Earths inside some of those bigger stars. Now, if you get in an airplane and you go up about 30,000 feet and you look down to where you can't even see a building, and when you get closer and closer, 15,000, 10,000, 8,000, 5,000, you start to see little cars that look like ants. You realize that this planet Earth is humongous. And you can put a million of them inside the sun and 1,400 suns inside of some of the bigger stars and there are 100 billion of those out there in the Milky... Uh, well, okay. Let me pause. And remember I said about eight years ago, they said there are about 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. I drive an older truck. It's a 2006. And my wife is one of the best-hearted women in the world. But she has told me, Kyle, on Sunday mornings we just can't take your, your truck to church. And I said, Why? I mean, well, she said, 
Well, when I'm dressed up in my dress clothes and I sit down in it, my clothes get dirty. You don't clean your car out. Now, here's always been my philosophy for vehicle maintenance. And I'm talking just in cycling. I've always gotten all the trash basically out of my truck. Uh, there's no cups. There's no bags. You could, if it's got seats for five people, you can sit down. All five people can all at once. I've always thought that meant a clean vehicle. Well, no, that's not clean because I, I don't historically feel like you need to vacuum it or wipe it off with anything. And so here's what happened. It had, I'm going to say it had been... When, when Bethany said that to me, I said, oh, you know, that you're right, Bethany. I need to do something about it. So I decided I was going to clean my truck. But I got in there and sprayed it with some stuff, sprayed a little rag with some stuff, and wiped that little plexiglass piece behind my steering wheel off. Did you know there's information behind there? It's like you can see things behind there. It tells you how fast you're going. There's a tachometer. It tells you that how many miles you got. I mean, you can, like once you get rid of the dust, you can actually see what's happening. That was remarkable to me. And so I, I thought, this is great. What else is in my truck? Start scrubbing it. It's great. Oh, you know, like if you're looking out in space and you estimate there are 100 billion stars, but you don't calculate for space dust getting in the way of where you're looking, what does that do to your numbers? Well, it doesn't make them go any smaller. It makes them go ridiculously larger. And so about eight years ago, they came out and they said, eh, you know what, we, we thought there were 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. We're wrong. There are probably three or four times that in the Milky Way galaxy. So you mean to tell me now it's not going to take me counting to 10,000 every day for 27,000 years. It's going to make me count 10,000 every day for 27,000 years plus 27 plus 27 plus 27,000 years. And that's to count the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. How many galaxies are there? Oh, right now they tell us there's 100 billion. Okay, so now forget all that we said about counting 10,000 every one of them counting as a star. Now count 10,000 for 27,000 years and you're counting galaxies, some of which have 400 billion stars in them, some of which are 1.4 billion times the size of planet Earth. And all that came from where, according to the atheistic Big Bang idea. Well, it came from a singularity that doesn't act like matter that popped into existence out of nothing and then exploded and it was 10 to the negative 26 centimeters across when it did and it brought in a universe that's 100 billion galaxies big. That doesn't make any scientific sense whatsoever. And I believe, with all due respect, that that's exactly why the Bible says in Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Because you do not believe in unbelief, in atheism, because of the evidence. You only come up with an idea like that if you define science as saying, we have to have answers that are materialistic. What do you mean you have to have answers that are materialistic? I've got an idea, a concept, an answer that explains everything we're seeing. A supernatural, eternal creator that is all-powerful would give you... Yeah, but we can't do that because that's not a materialistic idea. Yeah, well, a materialistic idea doesn't work here. Well, you've got to come up with some materialistic idea because we're saying that supernatural doesn't count. When you toss God out of the discussion from the start... What kind of ideas do you then get? Tiny stuff popping into existence from nothing and blowing up into a universe that is a hundred billion galaxies huge. And we could continue about if you could travel the speed of light and try to go across the universe, it would take you 96 billion years going the speed of light to get across the universe from one side to the other. And that's 186,000 miles per second. You've got to have something that's big enough for the effect that we see of our materialistic universe. And the only thing you've got that's big enough is a supernatural, eternal, all-powerful creator. Nothing else will do it. 
And there again, not using this as evidence for the existence of God, but I think that's exactly why the psalmist wrote in 1000 B.C., the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night utters knowledge. There is no language where their voice is not heard. You know what he simply means by that? If you're in Florida and you look up at a night sky and you see those stars, you're on, on Fort Morgan Beach in Gulf Shores and you see all of those stars, or you're in Alaska and you look up and you see all of those stars, or you're in Japan and you look up and you see all of those stars, you know something is going on that's not material. One other aspect to this as we look at this scientific idea is simply when you see functional complexity, when you see things working together in a very effective way and there are lots of pieces and parts that have to work together to do something, when you see functional complexity, we call it design, you know there had to be a designer. You know what explosions don't do? Uh, let me illustrate. You've got a 16-year-old. He says, Mom, I'd like to go to the movie. She says, sure, you got to clean your room. You've been into many 16-year-old boys' rooms lately. Uh, it's a feat to clean their rooms, most of them, because at this stage in their life, when they're 16, and I was just the same, they don't really feel the need. They, I'm, I'm not going to say which of my family members feels this way, but I can tell you it's not my wife, that they feel like if you get a pile of clothes out of the dryer, why in the world would you fold those things? Why don't you just dump them in the middle center of the floor and pick them out as you need them? That seems to be the most effective process, and so do that. Just dump them in there. Oh, I need a shirt today. Pull it out. I mean, it's fairly wrinkled, but who cares about wrinkles? You know what I'm saying? And this guy said, okay, hey, I'd like to go to the movies. His mom said, sure, as long as your room's clean. She thought she was giving him a fairly challenging idea. He said, oh, no problem, no problem. So she said, what time is the movie? He said, it's 7. So she waits. It's 4 o'clock. He hadn't messed with it. No problem. He's procrastinating. 5 o'clock. He hadn't messed with it. 6 o'clock rolls around. He hadn't touched his room. Still a wreck. She says, are you still going to the movies? He said, yeah, I thought we had a deal. I cleaned my room. I get to go. She said, oh, that was the deal. But, uh, you know, it's 6 o'clock. You said the movie starts at 7 and you haven't touched your room. And I know how long it takes to clean that thing. He said, Mom, I got it. No problem. 6.30 rolls around. She goes to him. She says, you're obviously not going tonight because you haven't. He said, Mom, I got this under control. 6.45 rolls around. She is determined that he obviously is not going because he hadn't touched his room. He marches up the steps to his room. She thinks, it's too late now. No way you can clean that thing in 15 minutes. He walks into his room, piles everything in the middle of it. All of his stuff, every bit of it. Piles it all in there. Pulls a stick of dynamite out of his back pocket. Shoves it under there. Lights it. Walks out. <laughs> Mom comes frantically, charging up the steps. What's left of, you would think, his room. But no, the door is still on there. She opens the door. She looks in. And what does she see? Perfect order. Everything has been fixed perfectly. The clothes that needed folded have somehow at the explosion, they were folded. The drawers came out in a split second long enough for those clothes to dump into it. And they shot it. All the clothes that needed hanging, the hangers somehow all flipped off. And the clothes that needed to be hung popped in the air. The hangers went up through them. And they are now hung on the bar in the closet exactly like they're supposed to. The shoes match perfectly. No. No, that's not what happened. And that kid never went to the movies again. And things did not turn out that way. But it just wasn't a big enough stick of dynamite. Okay, he sticks two sticks of dynamite up. You need a bigger explosion. No, he, he just didn't give it time. If he would have waited a little bit longer, he didn't blow it up enough times. He needed to blow it up five times instead of just... What do you know? Explosions don't cause order. They never do. And here is what is really one of the biggest challenges as I read, and I try to read every atheistic book that comes out. All of the, I've, like Stephen Hawkins, I've read all of his books right now. I'm in the middle of I've, I read them all. And one of the biggest problems they've got, and here's what they say, it looks like. What we, it looks like 
this universe that we live in, the one where we live, is perfectly designed for people to live on planet Earth. That's what it looks like. Now, we know that's not true, they say. But they have basically said there is a Goldilocks zone and our universe and planet are in the Goldilocks area. Goldilocks. You remember Goldilocks? Everything was just right for her. They said somehow we don't understand it, but this huge explosion caused a universe where we live to be exactly right. To function at a level that we as humans could never have even programmed it to do. I'll give you just an example. They said stuff is so fine-tuned. The knobs of the universe are so perfectly turned that we've got two forces, the electromagnetic force and the gravitational force, that if you adjusted them by the tiniest fraction, the universe that we now live in could not exist. Now, let me explain to you the tiniest fraction. That's probably the biggest understatement that I've made this evening. What do you mean the tiniest fraction? Okay, 0.1 means one-tenth. 0.01, one-hundredth. 0.001, 0.001, 1,000, 0.00001, You understand where we're going with that? They said if you adjusted either one of these two forces by a number of 0.00000 out to the 40th decimal place, the universe where we live could not exist. And how did that happen? From a huge explosion. Folks, it is literally, now listen to me, literally more improbable, that 40th decimal place, more improbable, I mean, exponentially more improbable than sticking a stick of dynamite under a 16-year-old's clothes and then being folded and put in the right spot. Now we know that doesn't happen. And that would be about point zero 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 zero. That would be down here at about point twelve decimal places. You're talking out to forty. Now, how does that happen? Okay, here's what you need. You need something that doesn't act like matter. That's always been around. That is all powerful and is smart enough to put it all together. You don't need a tiny ball of stuff that popped into existence from nothing violating the most fundamental law of science that we've got that is non-intelligent, that wasn't always here, that was super little and exploded. Now one of these two ideas does make legitimate good sense. And one of them simply does not. And I would like to suggest to you that in the beginning... God is the most powerful, most correct, most scientifically accurate statement when you're dealing with real science. Meaning, finding the actual answers, not ones that you've defined to be a certain way. In the beginning, God is the most accurate statement that has ever been uttered. Sure appreciate your kind time and attention. You have listened so kindly to the information that I am presenting this evening, and I greatly appreciate it. Wanted to tell you just a little bit as we're going to take a break here in about uh, a minute or so, and then we'll come back for our next lesson. On the back, you'll see a table full of materials. I work at a place called Apologetics Press, and we have been producing materials now for over 40 years. I've been there about 22 years. We produce material on basically every level, from two-year-old all the way up to PhD advanced type level. We are a nonprofit organization, and it means two things. Number one, most every bit of that material we have out there is free on our website, if you like digital stuff. Most all those books you can download for free. All of the videos that we have ever done, you can download for free on our site. We want the information to get out. And we don't want money to have anything whatsoever to do with it. Number two, however, some people still like books. If you're like me, I like to have a book in my hand. I like to read it. And because of that, we produce all of our stuff, a lot of it, in book form as well. 
And so we have books out there that are for sale. Now, when I say for sale, that's real loose. And here's what I mean. I've got some prices on there. And if you want to pay the 10 bucks for this book, good, pay it. If you are an unbeliever and you say, I'm not giving this Christian organization one dime, but I'd like to know what's in it. Okay, take the book for free. No problem. If you have $5, but you want five of the books, take them. There is no... We want nothing monetarily to get in the way of you getting information that we feel like will get you closer to your Creator. And so if at any point you want anything back there and you want to pay for it, fine. You don't want to pay for it, fine. You want to take five of them and give them to your grandkids and it's priced at 15 bucks, but you've only got 20 bucks. Okay, put 20 bucks, take all five of them and give them to your grandkids. We don't care. We want the information to get out there. Because... And I don't have time to tell you all the, the places and times we've seen this information literally save the faith and, and I, I won't say save the soul because Jesus Christ is the one that saves that, but get a person reconnected to their Lord. It, it, I, I can't tell you. I mean, I stand before audiences when I talk about AP and for an hour tell them story after story after story of things that I have heard of people needing this information, getting it, and their life being changed. So, that caveat. Now, I wanted to just explain three resources that deal with what we talked about in this section. There's a book right now, it's called Defending God, His Existence and Creation. It was designed with uh, lads to leaders. They got with us and we basically said, hey, are you guys, do you have an event at all that deals with Christian evidences? And they said, no, we don't have any events like that. And so we put this together to be twofold. It's perfect use for a class period. If somebody wanted to do a 13-week class for teens, and there are about 40 videos in the book. And when you get to a page that's talking about, let's say it's talking about design, we'll have a little video plug there. You hit a QR code and it takes you to the design of the hummingbird. And it's a two-minute video on the amazing design of the hummingbird. Or a two-minute video on the amazing design of a woodpecker or something like that. And so there are about 40 different videos that as the young people are reading through it, they can go and watch those videos. And they're all short videos of about six minutes, five minutes. A lot of them are two, three, four minutes had real good responses to that. This is the book that gives you the classical arguments for the existence of God. It's called Does Does God Exist in an adult form. Basically, just if you like to read material, this is not super scholarly, but it's well-researched and you would have the various different... um, What's the word I'm looking for there? What's your bibliography, the resources and stuff that, that documents the stuff in the book. This one is what we're dealing with this whole weekend. I debated a man by the name of Dan Barker back in 2009. He's the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation in Madison, Wisconsin. It's the largest group of unbelievers in the nation, technically. The signed up, due-paying members. Uh, in the front of this book is the transcript of our 2009 debate, the word-for-word transcript. So you can read the debate. The debate's online. You can watch it for free. But through the rest of the book, we go through and answer all of the things that he brings up in the debate that needs a more extensive answer than the two hours that we have. And he is a very good representative of modern atheism. And so what he says in those two hours represents many of the arguments that are used against God in the Bible today. And so this book is a good way to see, okay, here's what it would look like coming from an unbeliever, and then here's how you can answer those things. So that's what this particular book is. It's the debate and then the answer and the response to all of the things he brought up in that debate. So those are those three. If you have any other questions about any of the resources, let me know. We're going to take a quick break for about, let's say, five to six, eight minutes. So come back in here at about 7.15, 7.18, if you need to use a restroom or anything like that. And then we'll look at the idea of, okay, what is the logical implication involved? If there is no God, then what does that mean for us behaviorally? How would it cause a person, if they were living like that, to think and act? And so we'll go into that. So you're dismissed now for about five to eight minutes. You're dismissed.